Well, let's turn in our Bibles again to Matthew 11 and let's hear the words of teaching and instruction of our Saviour. Jesus brings to our attention some of the solemn realities of gospel proclamation. So last week we saw Jesus deal with the doubts and discouragements that John the Baptist was having in his prison cell. And it seems that there were many who were starting to say some very unkind and false things about John and were beginning to malign his reputation. Now, he, for the most part, had been welcomed by great multitudes when he began his his preaching ministry as he came out of the desert, this rather striking figure preaching repentance, the one who was preparing the way for the coming Saviour. But it seems now, and having heard his disciples come and question Christ, it seems that some now are beginning to malign John's reputation. And it's in response to this that Jesus begins to speak again from verse 7. The one who had been, apparently, the people's favourite, John the Baptist, is being attacked by those same people. And what we discover is that Jesus immediately defends John's faith, his ministry, and his reputation. And he does that from verse 7 through to verse 15. He defends John's faith, John's ministry, and John's reputation. And he does it to begin with by putting to the crowd three questions. There's one question in verse 7, one question in verse 8, and then a third in verse 9. So in verse 7, he turns to the crowd and he asks them, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed? Shaken by the wind? What does Jesus mean by this question? Well, he's asking them why it was that so many of them were giving John such rave reviews and why it was that so many of them were flooding out into the wilderness to hear this man. Then they were going home to drag everybody else out to hear him. Why did you do that? Jesus asks them. Did you do that because John was a man who was constantly changing his mind? Did you do that because John was a man who was constantly changing his views on things and bringing you a different message every time you went to hear him? Was he a man who could never make up his mind blowing backwards and forwards like a reed in the wind. Is that why you went out to hear John? This doubt, which John has voiced from a prison cell, is that how he's always been? Is that what attracted you to him? Jesus is embarrassing the crowd at how easily they've turned against John. They know that John preached with clarity, with conviction, with consistency. 
It was the same message again and again and again that they were hearing from John the Baptist, preaching the kingdom of God, calling people to repentance. A man firm in what he believed, firm in the message that God had given him to preach. Don't be turning your backs on John now when you discover that in a prison cell some doubts and anxieties have come over him. Jesus springs to the defence of faithful John in John's time of weakness. In verse 8, Jesus addresses the fact that they've been questioning his boldness. Did you go out to see a man in fine clothes, soft clothes? In other words, did you go out to see a man who'd never known hard toil? Did you go out to see a man who'd had everything handed to him on a plate? Because those who wear soft clothings, they're the ones found in kings' houses. Is that the kind of man that John was that you went out to see? Is that the kind of man who was making such an impact on you? Or was it not the fact, Jesus is making them think to themselves, was it not the fact that you went out to see this tough, rough man, a man who'd given up all of the comforts of life, a man who was ready to stop at nothing in order to fulfil that calling that God had placed upon him and to faithfully proclaim the message that God had given him. Wasn't that the man that you went out into the wilderness to hear preaching? Was it not a message which required great courage, great determination and great conviction to preach? Wasn't that the kind of man that John was? Don't you be questioning John. And he comes to the defence of God's servant. And then thirdly, and most seriously in verse 9, some in the crowd are beginning to question whether even John is a true prophet of God at all. What did you go out to see? A prophet? And he's reminding them. That is how you received John. That is who you thought it was. And Jesus says, yes, and you were right to think of him of that way. And you didn't think enough of him that way. More than a prophet was John the Baptist. Don't you dare question his prophetic word, says Jesus. Do you remember a verse in the previous chapter? Verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him also I will confess before my Father who's in heaven. And here is Jesus immediately coming to the, the defence of this faithful servant. Here is John who has faithfully confessed the message that God had given him before men. And we can be certain that Jesus has been confessing John before his heavenly Father. Did Jesus pray for John the Baptist? Well, let me ask you, is it conceivable that he wouldn't have? 
Is it conceivable that Jesus did not know about John the Baptist and the ministry that he had as the forerunner? Was it not Christ himself by the Spirit who'd inspired the Old Testament prophets to speak of John? It is inconceivable that Christ did not pray for John the Baptist and the message that he'd been given and the preparation that John was making for him. Jesus came to John to be baptised. Of course Jesus knew all about John's ministry. And here is John faithfully confessing, confessing, confessing. And as the people turn against him, the Lord Jesus is straight in. This is mine. This man is mine. You lay off him. And he comes to the defense of his faithful servant. And so here's Jesus giving, giving us an example of Matthew 10:32. Isn't it encouraging that Christ knows his own, Christ knows his faithful ones, Christ knows those who are faithfully confessing him? It could cost you everything to follow Christ. It may, be, it may well become increasingly costly to be a Christian in the UK in the years and decades ahead. Already we hear people saying scurrilous things about Christians simply for proclaiming the truth of God's Word. We have this assurance. Christ knows. Christ will uphold you. Christ will defend you before His Heavenly Father and before His throne of grace. And Christ is in you in the work. Christ is with you in the work. And Christ will confess you at his return when he calls you home. Those parables that Jesus taught, good and faithful servant, welcome, come home. And Christ is ready to confess those who are faithful to him. And we see that he's exampling that to us with John the Baptist here. Christ is for him. And Christ is for you. And he's with you in all of your daily life. He's with you in all of your daily struggles. And he's especially with you on any opportunity when you speak of him and confess him. Christ is with you. And he'll strengthen you. And he confesses you before his Father in heaven. And he prays for you. He intercedes for you. Maybe there'll be times and Satan will whisper in your ear, what kind of a Christian are you? And stir up doubts within you. The kind of doubts that John the Baptist had in his prison cell. And Christ will come, defend you, uphold you. We have these promises in God's Word. Be in no doubt regarding John's identity, says Jesus in verse 10. This is he of whom it is written. Jesus was right there when it was written. This is the one. And of course, in reinforcing who John was, 
Jesus is validating everything that John is saying about Jesus. He is the promised forerunner. He is the one who was preparing the way for me. And I will not have you speak of my servant like this, because I'm for him. And as those who today are in the position of confessing Christ, this same Jesus is for you. And Jesus continues, let me tell you, he says, while I'm at it, there's no man greater than John. There's no man greater than John. John's birth, of course, was a miraculous fulfilment of prophecy. And we're told that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And John proclaimed this new message of repentance in preparation for the coming of Christ. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets in that sense, that he was the final prophet pointing to the coming of Christ. And he was the last one before Christ actually came. And John would be the one who, in a sense, would actually get to do the handover from Old Testament to New Testament. There he is, he would point to Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of the the prophecies and all of the pictures and the shadows and types of the Old Testament that have been pointing forward to Christ, John is the last of those prophets who's now able to say, and there he is. And so John then would say, I now must decrease and Christ increase because it's all about him. Now, of course, it had always been about Christ. But now John can say, and there he is. And that's also the thrust of verses 13 to 14, you see. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And John now is the one who's bringing that curtain down. And of course, God eventually would bring the curtain down as Christ died on the cross and the the temple curtain is split in two. Such humble, committed service to the Lord. But then, after all this that's been said, what's this curious thing that Jesus then says in the second half of verse 11? Having said all of these great statements about John, Jesus then says, but... He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. He's he's just said, there's been no, no man born of a woman greater than John. But now he says, the least in the kingdom is greater than John. What does Jesus mean? Well, it's actually similar to the way that Jesus would tell his disciples that they would do greater things than he did. You say, sorry? How can that possibly be the case? That the apostles would do greater things than Christ? Well, let's think of it this way, you see. Think about the wonder of Christ's death and resurrection that the apostles would witness. 
But John never got to see that. Think of the gospel which is entrusted to the apostles, which would then be handed down through the generations of the church. John would never get to experience that. Such will be the ingathering of God's people through the preaching of the gospel, that the fruit of that will be greater than anything that John ever saw. Did even Jesus see 3,000 people genuinely saved and converted after a single sermon that he preached? I'm not so sure that he did. And when we get down to what he's going to say a little bit later about many of these towns where he's been preaching the gospel and the lack of response that there's been there, God in his grace is going to produce greater and greater fruit through the ministry of the apostles and then through the ministry of his church than John the Baptist ever saw. So in that sense, the least in the kingdom is greater than John in terms of the gospel fruit that's going to be gathered in. No one will ever overshadow John the man, but that which God will yet do through his church would even take John's breath away. But it's always the case, verse 12, that the kingdom of God is extended by those who have vigour and boldness, not by those who are fast asleep. Now verse 12 is a bit curious too, isn't it? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. When you first read that, it sounds as if Jesus is saying that the the preaching of the gospel is going to be totally overthrown and produce absolutely nothing. And that violent men are going to come and apprehend the gospel somehow and the preaching of it somehow. Uh, and it's, it's all just going to be stifled. But that's not what Jesus is actually saying here. Uh, what he's saying is that it's not violence against the gospel, overthrowing it and hindering it, but it's the power of the gospel in drawing in many and the dramatic way in which those who would be thought of having no place in God's kingdom actually gain entrance into it, beginning with John the Baptist. It's this vigour towards the preaching of John and then Jesus, which so infuriated all the religious leaders of the day. And what did we sing just a little bit earlier in one of our hymns? We sang that hymn, I found a friend, oh such a friend. And the third verse says this, I found a friend, oh such a friend, all power to him is given, to guard me on my onward course, bring me safe to heaven. The eternal glories gleam afar to nerve my faint endeavour. So now, to watch, to work, to war, and then to rest forever. Work and war is the gospel work. We don't sleep our way into gospel work. We don't sleep our way into bringing people into the kingdom. It's a war, it's a battle that's, in, 
that we're engaged in. And that's the language that's being used there in verse 12. Read again in the Acts of the Apostles of the boldness of Peter and John and Stephen and Paul. So much immediately wars against them in the preaching of the gospel. They're arrested, they're flogged, they suffer all kind of ill treatment, even death. Yet on they press. And frequently it takes such men to advance the gospel in the world. And even in the face of such violence, the church grows and people are added to the church. Men and women burned to death during the Reformation, yet on they pressed and the church continued to grow. Jim Elliot and his friends murdered in Ecuador and their wives go out and take their place and on they press in gospel work. So often it's this way. The gospel is not for the sleepy and it's not for the faint-hearted very often. We must be ready to take our place in gospel work and to press on for the kingdom. That's what Jesus is talking about there. If you've got ears to hear, then hear, says Jesus. Well, I think the battle for the gospel, gospel is going to get hotter and harder in this country. Are you up for the fight? We must be, mustn't we? We must be. Then, secondly, comes a warning for those who are rejecting John and bringing these accusations against him. And that begins at verse 16. And, and he just looks around at the crowd. Oh. What should I think of you all, he says. How, how will I liken you? What example can I give to explain what you're being like with your treatment of John? And Jesus actually uses a picture of children playing. But there's constant bickering amongst them as to which game they want to play. So in verse 17, what Jesus is actually doing there is picturing two real contrasts. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. That's an allusion to a wedding and the feasting and celebration at a wedding. And he compares that to a funeral service. We mourned to you and you did not lament. So the picture is this. You know the way children sometimes when they're very young they, they, will, they will play imaginary games which mimic things that adults do. So they'll want to play doctors and nurses and get dressed up. And when I was at primary school, we had like a little uh, toy kitchen. You could go in there and it was all pretend, you know, pretending you were cooking a meal and all of those kinds of things. And that uh, imaginary play that children enter into, that's the kind of thing that Jesus is picturing here. Uh, some children want to play weddings, but others don't join in. 
Some want to play funerals, but that's not what these others want to do. No matter what gets suggested, there are others who disagree. And no matter how many times you try and establish some common ground between them as to what game they're going to play, there's always someone who doesn't want to play that game. This is how unbelievers are reacting regarding the gospel. John came. He was a man who led a very austere life. He didn't eat normal things. Uh, he didn't drink uh, any alcohol. He, had a, he was under a Nazarite type of vow. And, and so he was this very unusual character. And so they look at a man like John and they say, well, the reason he's like that is because he, he's got a demon. Doesn't eat the stuff that we eat. Won't drink the stuff that we drink. He's got a demon. Then Jesus comes along. And he does eat all the things that everyone eats. And he will sit down with them at a meal and have a glass of wine. And he'll do it with all of the reprobates. So you think, well, given what they've said about John, now they'll accept Christ, won't they? Oh, no. No, they, they now hurl all kinds of accusations against Christ. He's a drunkard, loves the drink too much, just spends his time hanging out with sinners. So you've got John at this end, you've got Jesus at that end. No matter what you do, people will go against it. And this is how unbelievers are regarding the gospel. And it's a reminder to us, there's, there's no point trying to find some secret formula or approach by which you think you can unlock the hearts of people and they'll all flood into the church. No matter what you try to do, no matter what approach you take, there will always be rejection. There'll always be those who find a reason to criticise. So John the Baptist with his direct and forthright approach, his severe appearance and lifestyle, no, he's not for us. Jesus comes along altogether different to John. No, he's not for us either. We can't win with you guys, Jesus says. You're like children who can't decide what game you want to play. We need to be careful we, we don't get like that ourselves in church. Gospel ministry needs to be done like this. No, it doesn't. It needs to be done like that. We're like bickering children. A supposedly clever sounding phrase gets tossed around a lot. How should we do church? Well, we should do church this way. No, we should do church that way. And we're like bickering children in the playground. Now, of course, how we conduct ourselves in church is not an unimportant question. It's a very important question. But be very careful that you don't approach that question like children trying to decide which game you prefer to play. And if you won't play it my way, I'm off to find someone who will play it my way. And you should never ask, how do we do church? Unless you've got an open Bible in front of you and you prepare to read it and learn from it and let the Scriptures first and foremost have their say on what the answer is. The lives and ministries of Jesus and John may look very, very different 
But the thing about both of them, you see, is their commitment to the proclaiming of God's truth. And in that, they are joined at the hip. They are chalk and cheese in terms of characters and personalities, but they're joined at the hip when it comes to proclaiming the truth. And they do it with great boldness. They do it with great vigour. They do it with total commitment, even though they do it in different ways. It's truth which is the uniting force within the Church of Christ. And we need to be careful that we don't just get caught up in childish squabbles about other things. And it's the fruit of the proclaiming of truth which matters. That's what's meant at the end of verse 19. Wisdom is justified by her children. It's the fruit Is, genuinely, is genuine, healthy, spiritual fruit being produced? That's the issue. Are those who are coming to Christ matching up to what the Bible says a Christian should be? That's the issue. Are the results of gospel work in the church producing in people what the Bible says it ought to be producing. That's the issue. That's what to look for. Not bickering like children about personal preferences, which we can all be guilty of, regardless of what our preferences are. What's needed is gospel men and women who will unashamedly take the full force of the gospel into the world, regardless of how people are going to respond to it, because there will always be opposition and there will always be accusation, no matter how you go about it. Confessing Christ faithfully and obediently and accurately is what's needed. And as you do that, you can be sure of this, Christ will be remembering you before his Father in heaven. And he will remember you at the last day and he will welcome you home. And then this passage concludes with a solemn warning of judgment in verses 20 to 24. And this is a, a warning of judgment against those who've heard the gospel yet repeatedly reject it. J.C. Ryle said this, Let us settle in our minds that it will never do to be content with merely hearing and liking the gospel. We must go further than that. We must actually repent and be converted. Nothing less will do when it comes to the gospel of Christ. We must actually repent and be converted. Jesus had been preaching in these cities for a long time. Capernaum had been his home base for ministry. His disciples had been out preaching in the region. But even long before they started that, Jesus has been doing it. Preaching, tenderly imploring them to turn to God, calling them to repentance and into the kingdom of heaven. And so the Lord 
with his words of condemnation here, these aren't words of someone who's got a really short temper and who's just flying off the handle at the slightest thing because, well, I've told you once and now you won't do it. No, he's been repeatedly preaching, preaching, preaching. These are not the words of someone who's really impatient. He's been imploring them for months and months and their response has been total indifference. Their response has been to reject Christ. Their response has been to label him as a devil and a heretic. It's in that context that the Lord pronounces this reproach upon the people. And so his, his strong words, that they're, they're not the result of hot-headedness or a sinful impatience with the people. They've had time. They've had time to listen. They've had time to think. They've had time to consider. They've had time to come back and listen some more. We live in a day when it's okay to believe the gospel as long as you don't expect somebody else to. It's fine for you to believe this stuff as long as you keep it to yourself. It's fine for you to think all of these things, but don't be talking about it to others. But you see, the Lord Jesus Christ demands two things. He demands that the gospel be sent out and he demands that people must respond to it. A response is required. And it's that lack of response that he addresses from verse 20. And Jesus makes plain the consequences if you don't. His rebuke of these people is very sharp, but you see, their eternal state is at stake here. He rebukes them for their lack of repentance. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, all need to repent. God commands all men everywhere to repent. And in verses 20 and 21, Jesus emphasises the immense position of privilege that they've been in to have had his ministry in front of them right before their noses. The mighty works which have been done in you. That's mentioned twice, verse 20 and verse 21. These mighty things you've witnessed. God could not have done more the sick have been healed. The dead have been raised. And from amongst their own families and from amongst their own communities, there were no doubts for doubt, no grounds for doubting that any of these miracles had been done. It was their own family members, it was their own next door neighbours who were being healed. Everybody knew someone. This person from birth, we've seen them, we know them. This condition they had, it was real. Look at them now. It was there before their very eyes. They have the teacher of all teachers proclaiming truth and they've had no other choice but to acknowledge amongst one another, we've never heard anything like it. And still their hearts remain as hard as stone. That's 
the people that Jesus is condemning here. And it also reminds us, don't imagine that there's some scheme that you can come up with which will unlock people's hearts and bring them to faith in Christ. Do you suppose that we can improve on the ministry of Jesus? And yet look at the people's response to him. Total indifference and apathy from so many of them. Jesus says, I can imagine the residents of notorious places like Tyre and Sidon and even Sodom, if they'd had what you've had, they'd have repented. If Sodom back then had had what you've had, Sodom would still be here. God would never have had to destroy it. That's, that's a weighty thing to say to someone. That's a hard-hitting rebuke against these who've had such immense spiritual privilege. And this is a topic that Jesus keeps bringing up, you know. It's a hard-hitting conclusion. You're heading for a greater condemnation in hell than even these notorious cities that you look down on. They would have received the gospel far more readily than you. Let's be clear about this, says Jesus. The gospel is not a take-it-or-leave-it lifestyle choice. The gospel is the Lord God of heaven holding out to you the merits of his own son who came into this world to suffer and die for sinners like you. And God holds out the merits of his own son, Christ, and says, repent and trust in him and believe on him and you will be saved and you will have everlasting life. And for you to simply shrug your shoulders for you to respond with a belligerent so beware of that will take you beware that beware of where that will take you says Jesus beware of where you're heading there's a mixture of heartache and condemnation in Christ's words oh that they would repent and his heart yearns for them. Oh, that they will not repent, and his heart burns against them. That's God. The God of grace who holds out the grace, gracious message of salvation. Come, come. It's how the chapter's going to finish. Come, come. But if you will not come, if you refuse, just anger, condemnation, judgment. These words of Jesus should shake us to our very core. For believers to pray to proclaim Christ and to urge upon people like never before, repent and receive the Saviour. For unbelievers to take full note 
of where your rejection of Christ is taking you and leading you. And to remember this, on that last day, you will be without excuse. There is one who we remember now around the Lord's table who laid down his life a ransom for sin. Will you not today repent and receive his gracious gift of forgiveness and life everlasting?